Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast coming your way. Episode 188. We're speeding right along. Steve Schmeed, the mobster, joining me. What's going on? Nothing good. We've got some ins and outs. Some good, some bad, some politics, some business. Interesting guy and a hyper responder as a bodybuilder. Let's get into it. So mobster's boy, Vince Taylor, is who we're going to talk about today. And Vince Taylor is one of the most, I would say... He's yeah, he's got a lot of wins under his belt. In fact, he set the record for the most IFBB titles at 22. That would be later snapped by Ronnie Coleman, who got 26. Um, he holds the record for most Masters Olympia wins. He dominated the late 90s. He was winning every year in the Masters. Most experts, including us, think he's the most prolific bodybuilder of all time. That's how I, I would describe him. So we're gonna go Very over all so, yeah. We're going to go over all of that. Stats, five foot nine, a shredded 230 for competition, and 250 pounds in offseason. And those of you who maybe not heard the name, you might know about the posing routine. He know, he's well known for the Terminator posing routine. So, Mobster, explain what that was, the Terminator posing routine. Right. So, uh, any good poser... I've, I've used the phrase before, Steve, when we talk about the zeitgeist or something. And, and what I mean by that sometimes is something of the moment, right? Whether it's an actor, a politician, a singer, or whatever, where they're able to tune into a moment. So what happens, you need to be a great poser. And we're going to get into why he was a great poser later on. But he came up with this routine because the Terminator movie had just come out. And it was, of course, crazy popular. Arnold Schwarzenegger, bodybuilder, is the Terminator. He's going to come in from the future. He's going to kick your ass. There's no way to escape him, et cetera, et cetera. People are going crazy. They're queuing up. They're doing the midnight showings, all that kind of stuff. And whether it's a great tune or, in this case, this movie vibe, he comes up with this routine. I don't even know if he was the first. He was definitely the one, the man that made it and, and, and took it and owned it so he comes out on stage and there's a little bit of music and i think there's i think the original version there's a little bit of funky music or whatever and then it kind of goes into this terminator voice and he's just like locking his guns into position like he's got a laser sight going on and the crowd's like goes quiet for a moment and then he's like marching like a terminator robot across the stage and people are like what the fuck and then they just start going crazy and he owns that shit he owned that stage whether he won that competition or not, he owned that stage for five, ten, I think it was like an eight-minute routine, Steve. I'm going to say eight minutes he owned it. That No one else was going to touch him. If there's a posing award, he's going to win it. It looks like there's that kind of fucking moment where he's almost like going to win this posing award forever. There are still people doing Terminator routines now, Steve. And you're talking at least 20 years ago. Guys, look it up. Put Vince Taylor Terminator routine the person, the founder, the founder, the man owned that right from the beginning and put it in there. And imagine you're back in like 1980 something or whatever when the movie came out and this amazing physique, this great black bodybuilder comes out and he owns that stage for eight minutes with this ro- this whole robot thing. I mean, there's, there's been great, loads and loads and loads of good poses, great music, et cetera, et cetera. But this was iconic. It was one on its own. And it's well worth watching just to get their vibe. To say that as, as of its time was on point. Now, now, guys, if you look at the Mr. Olympian now, Steve, most of the top, top pros, they're kind of just going like through maybe the six basics and two or three other exercise poses and maybe one that they own for themselves. None of them are really putting in effort. Vince put in their effort and it showed. Definitely worth checking out. Back to you. Yeah, and... You can look up the videos of it. It's going to be linked in the article, of course. So, you know, getting his career going in a weird fashion. Really, really interesting story. I found fascinating. He was um, early life, though. First, 1956 is when he was born. Very gifted. 
uh, played many sports. He dominated his older peers throughout childhood. His favorite sport, football. Now, he weight trained to get better at football, but in the process, he fell in love with bodybuilding. So his first competition, his first actual competition called Mr. Berlin, this was in 1983. He actually got into two car accidents in a row on his way to the competition. First was behind the theater in a car lot. And the second was 100 feet away at an intersection where he hit a guy in front of him. So after he had to wait for the police to figure everything out, make the report and everything, he was late to the competition. But it ended up being a blessing because he had to compete in the higher heavyweight category. So he yeah. ended up winning first place. So it ended up turning out to be really a good thing. And I guess fate sent him in that direction. He took a few years off to uh, improve his physique. And in 1987, he got fourth place at the NPC Nationals. The next year, he came back and won first place at that same competition. And that's where he got his pro card. So really, really patient to take a few years off and then come back. We don't see patience uh, in today's society like that. I'm going to jump in here, Steve. There's a couple of uh, backstories for you guys in terms of uh, which Vince talks about in interviews. So as Steve just said, that was the Mr. Berlin competition. And... Uh, I don't believe that uh, Vince was actually in the in the military, but he went out originally to Germany as a contractor of some description. I don't know what his uh, day job was, but he was out there working on the army bases. And essentially, in one of these in in interviews with us with John Hansen, he said, I loved it. The life of a single man in another country on the army bases, the guys are like, you know, all receptive to a, a, a fellow coming all the way from the States to come and work on the early basis. They, they're grateful for you being there. He loved it. He said it was just amazing. In terms of the competition, I want to get into something very, very quickly here. He's a, what, what, what I've termed in my show notes is called a John Brown pupil. Now, guys, if you don't know who John Brown is, so put John Brown bodybuilder, Sean Ray Vince Taylor into Google, see what comes up. An amazing poser, which ties in with the Terminator room that we've already talked about. And specifically, and this is something that he talks about in an interview again with John. He said, so what happened was he goes to, he's a, what is, I think he went back to the States and then decided to go back to Germany to work out there full time to get into the whole lifestyle that he'd seen over there. So he goes back. He goes with the guys, with his buddies, whatever, to a bodyboarding competition for some particular reason. And on stage, owning that stage, like I've just talked about with Vince with the routine, is John Brown. He's killing it. And to quote Vince, he says, there's John looking amazing with his jerry curls, very much of the time, um, like an afro with sort of a, a lot of uh, hair gel on, but owning this stage and entertaining the crowd. And they said what really caught his eye was John comes off stage. Uh, the, the competition's over. And there are a lot of, in Vince's words, he's hanging around John. They, they've seen this guy. They've seen him move. They've seen him shake it. They're all like touching his arms and wanting to talk to him or whatever else. He says, right then and there, I decided I was going to be a professional bodybuilder because I wanted what John had. So there's a particular thing. And I also think it's not just him. Possibly we've done podcasts on Dennis James. Someone who's enjoyed traveling around the world uh, and seeing other um, countries, seeing other lifestyles and whatever. So, I mean, I'm going to get into more later on, Steve. Definitely elements of as a professional bodybuilder, he seemed to feel more welcome and appreciated as an athlete uh, in Europe than he did in the States. But again, we're going to get into that later on as to the, the wires and wherefores. Back to you. Let's kind of get into how, how it went. He fell, he, he got third place behind the two leads, Lee Labrada and Lee Haney, 1988, Mr. Olympia. Um, that was incredible to get third place. Uh, that just shows you what kind of bodybuilder he is. Yeah, that same year, he won the Night of Champions, finished second at the Grand Prix England and Grand Prix Finland. In 91, Mr. Olympia, he again got third place, this time behind Haney and Yates. And his other Mr. Uh, his other Mr. Olympia finishes, 92, he got sixth place, 95, fifth place, and 11th in 2006. Now, Masters Mr. Olympia, he dominated 96, 97, 99, 2000, and 2001, he won. The only reason he didn't win it in 98, and I actually looked into this, is there was no Masters Mr. Olympia in 1988. And um, I don't know, Monster, do you know why there was none? 
that year? No, I, I, I think possibly I'm trying to. So don't quote me on this, guys. I think it was literally the there was some argument with the promoter. I believe someone. I think it was the woman. Again, don't quote me on this. Uh, put together a competition and for some reason or other they couldn't get the money that was required the deposits that required etc etc and it was all very much last minute and no one else was able to step up to the plate so it's one of those things where it appeared it was going to go ahead it was promised it was going to go ahead and then couldn't because someone fucked up essentially so yeah again don't quote me on this guys i'm, I'm literally on the spur of the moment relying on my very uh, archaic ancient memory of the time and i think i read something about it in muscle mag international so there's probably someone out there, someone out there that would be 100% on this. So that's I think that's my best guess slash memory of the time, Steve. Well, that sums it up for him. He dominated ever since he was a kid against his peers and as a senior against other peers his age too. So we're talking about a guy who's genetically gifted, you know, for yes. bodybuilding where he could dominate no matter if he was young, eight years old, or if he was older. So he briefly retired from bodybuilding in 2002. A few years later, came back at 50 years old, and he got third place at the 2007 Australian Pro and third at the Arnold Classic. So even 50 years old, he was still kicking ass. 22 titles altogether, 22. Yeah. And he finished second or third in countless others. So we'll leave a, a list of the competitions. Huge. In the article, you guys can check out the article at a later date. But really, he was a, he was dominant and he competed in so many competitions. I, I'm looking in 1991, he, comp he competed in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten competitions that same year. One that's, year. Yeah, that's one competition a month almost. I mean, that's incredible. The guy loved competing. And he was either winning these competitions or he was getting second or third place. His worst yeah. showing that year was fifth place. And then after that, his worst showing was third place. So, I mean, the guy was just dominant and uh, he loved bodybuilding and loved competing. So that's a guy who loves doing it and who is completely happy traveling and doing all these competitions because it takes a lot out of you to travel and do all that. I'm going to jump in here, Steve. So I touched on a little bit earlier on the difference between his reception uh, in the US versus reception elsewhere. Now, here's the thing, guys. There's no doubt whatsoever that Vince is a great, great bodybuilder. But this is the hardcore body podcast because we tell you the real deal. So I've seen, just refreshing my mind this morning, watched an interview with him and refers to John Hansen already, and he talks about uh, how he and, and other interviews, which I did at the same time, watching video reading at the same time as usual, half listening, half reading. And he talks about uh, a bodybuilding.com uh, not getting what he thought he was due, and I'll use that word carefully, out of the sport in the US. So he goes to, let's say, Germany again, or any of the other countries that he competed in or did tours in, and he would be treated like a star. He's fated on stage. The audience loved the routine. He's a great poser. He's a great bodybuilder. So he's going to be well-received anyway. The promoter's giving him the cash. He's treated well. We, today was a really good night, mate. Let me take you out for a meal as an extra thank you. You know, the, the honeys, as he would put it, early years are hanging around. There's all that kind of vibe going on. When he came back to the States, he was placing, as Steve said, incredibly well. If he's not... First, he's second, he's third, and he's doing 10 competitions in a year. The thing, I, my, my vibe and my opinion especially was that he thought winning equated to success in the US. And unfortunately, and especially as we know in modern times, that's not the case. You don't get given a Rolls Royce and a bucket full of cash because you won. Promote, promotion, promoters will pay you to, to do guest posing, you, but you've got to work. It's quite simple. Steve and I discussed this in the pre-show. We've done this on previous podcasts. It is a business. Now, because you've traveled to Bulgaria and the Bulgarians think you're great and the promoter took you out for a steak dinner afterwards, thank you, and he gave you $2,000 or whatever he was getting paid in those days, you come back on the plane and you're, he says that there was times when he's landed in countries and there's been people waiting from the airport. 
and uh, he's done uh, newspaper interviews and TV stuff. Well, that's because he's a great American bodybuilder going to Bulgaria or to Poland or, or to Hungary or whatever. When he comes back to the US, he's just a great bodybuilder. And there are other great bodybuilders, including Lee, Lee Haney, Rich Kaspari, Lee Labrada and others. And the reality of that situation is, as a good example, Lee Haney invested in property. Lee Labrada set up a protein company, a sports supplement company. There are other things going on. What you've got to do, guys, is you have to take that fame, that great win on a bodybuilding stage, and turn it into a success. It's not given to you. You have to approach companies for interviews as many times as they'll approach you. Can't turn stuff down when opportunities present themselves. You can't say no and then expect then expect to be successful. You've got to learn to be creative. And of course, in this day and age with social media, even more so. So the reality of the situation is, I think, is that he was expecting to be kind of fated and famous when he was in the US. And unfortunately, that was wrong. But it was wrong because he was one of a number of very, very good bodybuilders at that time. Kevin Levron, as others, come around the time as Steve's already mentioned in one of the competition, Doreen Yates. You, if your local newspaper's not taking it up, why is that? If there's national stuff taking it up, why is that? I've, have you put out a DVD? Have you put out promotional courses about your training? Are you contacting magazines? Do you have someone in management that can help you with this kind of stuff? You're going to have to pay that person a percentage to work on your behalf as your agent and so on and so forth. There are pro bodybuilders now that are not even second, first, second or third at the Mr. Olympia that do incredibly well because, to, to coin a phrase, they have their business head on because their girlfriend, their partner, their training party is sorting stuff out for them. So they, as a good example again, Steve, if you're not sponsored by a supplement company, start one, make your own. There are companies that will make products for you, never mind you having your own in an actual factory and a big warehouse. There are companies that will drop stuff up for you. In this day and age, we don't really do the little training guys because we can go online and watch it. But again, we've talked about this in podcasts. In this day and age, you would pay the videographer the money that you make on YouTube and then you get the money from the products that are sold, a la Larry Wills with his PR equipment and so on. So... Like I said, there was a feeling or a sense for me with Vince that he didn't quite get the reason why he wasn't as big or as financially successful as he should have been, in his opinion, in the US. And it's quite simple. He needed to work for it. Uh, and I'll use this example with Steve in the pre-show. Back in the day when Joe Weeder was the daddy, so to speak, and the sport, very, very lucky, got a thousand dollars a month when when arnold came to the states under joe thousand dollars and arnold quite simple straight away thought there wasn't enough money but he didn't go back to joe with his hand out saying i think i deserve more money him and franco started up a building company and there's the famous story about some of the walls that they made and some of the decorating they've done still today in parts of this he, he started asking joe for a page in a magazine. This is before other guys were doing it. So because he realized that the page in a magazine was worth way more than a thousand dollars, he got people to work on his behalf. Girls, I think some of the biographies, posting out their training courses. The things are actually very expensive on eBay now, Steve, so stuff like that. I mean, that was Arnold, the, the legendary story of Arnold taking the envelopes when they came in the post and holding them up to the light to see if they had money inside and opening those for so that they could get the courses produced, so they could post these out, sending out Arnold T-shirts and so on. So lo and behold, you go from $1,000 a month to doubling up because you're working, and then you're getting another $1,000 a month because you've got your promotional side going on. And this is way, way, way before Vince was around and way, way before social media. And now, you, money will not be given to you. You have to work for it. I don't care how damn famous you are. If they got you going and opening up a nightclub, or whatever, you've got to be there on time, you've got to be professional, you've got to dress well, and you've got to make the crowd feel like they're having some kind of experience. They're not going to go crazy, they're not going to give you loads of money, it's not going to be driving, delivering sports cars for you to keep as long as you want, sir. If you're just standing there with your hand out, expecting to be famous, expecting that money to come. What do you think, Steve? Guys, I need to work for it, yes or no? Well, 
it's funny because I, I saw some something about this. I was watching like a business show and they're talking about marketing and how marketing, you know, marketing is one of those things where, you know, you can be a, let's say in bodybuilding, you could be an average bodybuilder or a guy who's done like two competitions. But if you have a great marketing team, you're going to have a million followers on Instagram and you're going to have, you're going to have a bunch of endorsements from companies, but you can be a great bodybuilder and have a poor marketing team or refuse to have marketing and not. So in this example that I was reading about Mike Trout, who's a famous baseball player, perhaps one of the top, really top three, top five baseball players right now in major leagues. And he doesn't market it. He spends his, his free time um, doing charitable work. He spends his free time visiting children's hospitals and, and stuff like that. He doesn't spend this uh, free time going on TV and doing a lot of interviews and, and going on, you know, these podcasts, you know, and, you know, doing that type of thing. And that's his thing. And that in the end, he's missing out on millions of dollars, but that's his choice. And some in the media, you know, criticize him for not, being you know marketing himself but in the end he's happy he's happy he he makes a lot of money just from baseball he doesn't feel the need to go and be out there and 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 be in the limelight and some people aren't comfortable doing that so in the end it just depends but in in you know in, in taylor's case if he was upset about about his situation i kind of don't blame him i mean look at what he's accomplished but in the end not the accomplishments don't mean shit. A lot of a lot of people are listening to this podcast and never even heard of Vince Taylor, you know, and they're like they're shocked. Like, this guy has 22 titles, the most titles ever, and I've never heard of him, you yeah. know. And that's at, to Vince that might be frustrating because you're you're a bodybuilder and you're on stage and stuff. So, and there's a lot of money that he missed out on because of the lack sure. of promotion. So. But, you know, on his, you know, there is a lot of videos floating on YouTube. Um, he was in a documentary called Getting Pumped. He was in some um, one called Beyond the Masters and Vince Taylor Workout, which is also very popular. So those in the know in bodybuilding know who Vince Taylor is, but many, many yeah. do not. So it's not like his Instagram page has, you know, tons, you know, tons of followers. You know, he doesn't have uh, that many followers. In fact, you know, I'll tell you um, how many followers he has. Let me pull up his Instagram page right now while we're on the air, and I'll tell you. I bet it's not very much, Mobster. Yeah, it's only it's only fifty eight thousand followers for a guy yeah, who's won fifty. Yeah, for a guy who's won twenty two titles and countless others, second and third place, to have only fifty eight thousand is nothing. And and Ronnie Coleman, uh, who broke his record. You know, um, I can pull up Ronnie Coleman's um, Instagram and tell you how many he has. He has five million followers. I was gonna say, so he has ten. Yes, you know, he has a hundred times. Hundred times, yeah. A hundred times more followers. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's frustrating if you're Vince Taylor. Yeah, it's frustrating, but you know that's one of those things where a marketing team pays off for you, and you know that's that's how it goes. So. Let me give you an example of this. I've told this story before. So I said back in the days when I was regularly competing in grip competition, I trained with, I'll name drop because I've done it a bunch of times before, I trained with uh, Lawrence Charlet. Now, that wasn't me and him training together. We were all together in the same gym, which uh, my, myself and my business partner run at the warehouse where we had the supplement company. And I specifically told this story. Now, you remember with guys as, as popular as Uncle Loz, as he's described as now, especially since he's retired, we're talking about right back at the beginning of his career. So this is the very beginning of his career. And I think my, probably the middle of the time that I was competing. But I would argue that at that time, I had my business head on and he didn't. And I'll, put it, I'll tell you that's right. So we've got, it's competing well enough to be invited to the world's strongest man. Now, as strong as what I am in what I did back then when I was competing regularly, and that's right in the middle of my sort of lifting career, if you want to describe it, that, it's not the world's strongest man. And the world's strongest man at those times, because I, told to, I spoke to people in a know, had a total viewing, and this is all the uh, re-shows, it's all the, the sports bar stuff, 
and it's all in mainline uh, TV in the US and in the UK and in Europe. And I think the audience was somewhere around total uh, viewing figures were around 200 million, uh, Steve, which is not unreasonable. Uh, and again, I mean, I think, for example, the money for winning the World's Strongest Man at that time was less than the money for the Mr. Olympia. And even then, the money for the Mr. Olympia is not as good uh, as it is now. So you got that, right? But you could make money doing some of the tours and, and, and the pro competitions and the qualifiers and so on and so forth. The year that Lawrence went pro, the girlfriend that he was with at the time stayed in her job to support him so that he could take this pro career. And I made more money doing exhibitions and putting on seminars and uh, winning cash and getting given free shit because I was making a name for myself because I was self-promoting through my, I had self-promoting through Muscle Mob, my magazine, because I had allowed myself to be viewed by up for other magazines because the internet as was then, and we're talking around, I'm going to say year 2000, had already taken off. So I was out there, I was pushing myself as a grip athlete on bodybuilding, like on Evo and Elite and Anabolics, etc. I was pushing myself on those sites. So they knew that I was the grip guy, myself and a couple of others, David Horn especially. And so you're in that position when you become someone in the know or who could be argued as I am on, on even still now in a couple of UK forums, a guru. And what that meant was, that I got given free stuff. I got given free books, I got free, free grippers and so on. That and the money that I got made for doing exhibitions. So we go to say Body Power or, or other exhibitions here in the UK. I think the most I did was free in three weeks, picked up the equivalent of a thousand pounds for doing those three, three things. Lawrence wasn't getting any of those things. And, and an example of someone who was Glenn Ross, who's the daddy, the classic line that he used to use, there's a documentary or a series of documentaries, two, 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 I think they did two of them called Hard Bastards. And Glenn appeared on one of those as a big, very, very big, obviously 400 pound uh, strong man doing The Doors in uh, Ireland where he lived. And in the interviews, training, working, shining, training in the gym, including going to the local butchers where Steve, he's given half a pig or half a cow. And there's hundreds and hundreds of pounds of meat going into the boot of his car. And in the window of the butchers is a picture saying, Glenn Ross eats the meat from this shop or something like that. So, and I said, Lawrence wasn't in so much as a fucking sausages. He hadn't put himself forward. He wasn't thinking like a pro. So he wasn't doing personal training. He wasn't doing any one-to-one -one stuff. He wasn't doing any training by internet or by email or by telephone. He wasn't doing any of those things. He didn't have clothing with his name on it. He wasn't working with a supplement company. As, a, as an example right now, how much has changed since then, he works with a, a clothing company that makes clothing for very big guys like himself. He gets paid to do commentary at the shows, which he wasn't getting before and so on. More so since he retired, and especially since he's been married to Liz, uh, Auntie Liz as she's called, and they've got the, a YouTube channel and so on. So his attitude changed as he learned and became a professional. I suspect, and as I said this already, and this doesn't just apply to Vince, you need to maximize your, especially as an athlete, and I'll reference the athlete that Steve talks about. There is an opportunity sometimes to earn a great deal of money being for playing your sport, but at that level, you will not be a top gun athlete forever. You're going to get injured, body parts are going to wear out, and so on. So you might end up physically knackered, worn out with injuries, etc., at age 40. You might have started as an athlete, pro athlete, age 20, and by age 40, you're done. That's the whole of your career. And we got this in this country with soccer players. A handful of those soccer players go on to become team coaches, team managers, or TV pundits. But there are that's like maybe 10%. The other 90% need to find something else to do. And if they didn't maximize their income during their earning years, they've got no money to fall back on. And that's why we've seen, especially 20, 30 years ago, athletes that that were they ended up claiming money from the government because they didn't save for a pension they didn't think professionally they didn't work out how they could make money after the careers was over and as an element here and i said it doesn't just apply to vince robbie robinson is an example i used earlier was told to come to california turned up when there was no 
uh, had no money, had to work out how he, he actually went off and did some posing that actually got him $3,000, $4,000. You can read that in his biography. And he talked about how that sorted him out for a few months until he was able to settle down and get promotional stuff done on a regular basis in California. But when he turned up, he was waiting for stuff to happen and nothing happened. When, you know, he was lucky to go and see Joe for a chat, lucky to get a few bucks off of Joe, et cetera, et cetera. And Arnold was the kind of guy that realized straight away need to work and figure out these things are done and maximize your, you, who's going to look after you more than anybody else? You. So as Steve said, whether that's with a marketing team, whether it's with a manager, whether it's an agent, someone to get you in the movies, someone to get you posing exhibitions, someone to argue your corner when it comes to prices, companies that are going to push products with your name on, your uh, deal contracts, for example, if you win the Mystery Olympia, does they double up on the contract? That's not unusual. Get paid 200000 and then win another 200000 because you won that competition and so on and so forth. A lot of the time, the athletes are so focused on their career, they don't really have the time or the energy to put into those kind of things. So, guys, it's not going to say the social media now. Steve's quite correct. There are young guys, and we've actually done podcasts on some of these already, who are better way better with Instagram and way better with YouTube than many of the top athletes in the world and have huge followings literally because they appeal to the man in the street uh, and they sell clothing. Steve's talked about $500 a month uh, meal plans and diets and training courses, etc. And, and these, some, we, we, I've, I've quoted, wouldn't I quote one, one of the podcasts with Devon? I think the, he actually had a tax declared figure that he'd taken $700,000 in a year uh, just doing online training and online courses and diet plans. And that was what he declared to the US tax office. So they, there's an example, guys, that, that if the amount of money that you can win in the Mystery Olympia is $400,000, there's an athlete who hasn't won the Mystery Olympia, who I think he actually did more the second year. But the first year, when he did this to the level that we're talking about was $700,000. So guys, think pro, act pro. If you need to work with a marketing team, do so. If you need to have someone else, the wife, the girlfriend, your buddy, to look after the other side of things, then give them a decent cut and they'll work hard to promote you because it's in their interest as well. And you can focus on the training and your diet and the grind that's going to produce a supreme athlete. Let's get into the training and the nutrition sleep before we get to the juicy stuff. Yeah, why don't you hit the training first, and then I'm going to talk right. about the diet, and then we're going to get into a steroid cycle. Right, so guys, Vince is a fucking freak, and I say that in the nicest possible way, right, because both with training and diet, which I'm going to let Steve touch on, it's 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 kind of fucked up, Steve. It really is. Uh, the, 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 the diet especially. When you look at a bodybuilder like Vince, you expect him to be, we just done a podcast on Mike Matarazzo, and we thought about Mike consuming a quite ridiculous seven pounds of steak in a day, no vegetables, and you go, oh, Vince has got to be doing two pounds of steak at least, and all this kind of stuff, training, I'm just going to focus on the training here, so Vince used lightweights, let's not fuck around, uh, when, when you look at his physique and you expect him to be doing, he's not going to be like the world's strongest man enough. But you go, oh, he's got to be doing 350, 400 pounds on the bench. No. He's got to be doing 400 pounds, maybe 500 pounds on the squats. No. You go, oh, look at those amazing biceps of his, including the fact that he would come back from a bicep injury. He's got to be using this 30-pound dumbbells, guys, 50 pounds at the most, 200 pounds on this exercise, 300 pounds maybe on a squat, that kind of stuff. He, he used very, very light weights compared to what we see in the magazines and what we see online. Now, again, guys, no one's training flat out with 800-pound squats year-round, bodybuilder, powerlifter, whatever. No one does that. You work up to periods like this. But Vince was nowhere near these big numbers. There was never a time where you would see him with four plates and five plates on squats in the magazines. You just didn't. Because he's amazing, amazing small joints. His ability, if anything, which I'll get into specifically, his ability to focus on what he called the angles. And what I mean by that was with John Brown back in the day explaining how you develop those little the show muscles to make muscles pop. And I described it in another podcast, Steve, when I said Sam Fussell's story, uh, a diary of an unlikely bodybuilder, watching a pro bodybuilder backstage 
with 15 and 20 pound dumbbells and seeing the muscles swell up before Sam's very eyes. And it's the ability to put your mind into the muscle and to get an amazing contraction. And then as uncomfortable as that is, stay there. So this is very much, I'll, I'll go through the actual numbers here. So he talks about training multiple interviews six times a week. Now that right there is quite a bit, taking literally a day off. He said about the amount of time that he was sometimes training twice a day, and he said he would, he would allow 90 minutes, especially if you're doing a morning workout. He says, I'm not training flat out for 90 minutes. That's the amount of time I allocated to go to the gym. Do a split routine, separating his push, pushing exercises from pulling, and then incorporating abs, legs, and miscellaneous work muscles. More than anything, believing in the feeling, as I said earlier, in the focus of working on his lifts and rejecting the characterization that he lifted heavy weights, 100%. It was definitely a lightweight lifter. On the flip side, he throws out a suggestion that people said he was using high reps. Again, no. If you look, and we've described this in the article, an average workout split from was 30 sets and keeping a rep range for six to 12. Now, I've had a, a, a competing athlete train here during COVID, uh, who should remain nameless for obvious reasons. And this particular person has also been a judge at bodybuilding competitions. And when we had other athletes come in, including a couple of guys that were talking about competing, I'd have him show them how to do a couple of exercises where he would, for example, not locking out on an isolever leg press and putting your foot on a position in such a way on one of the on the foot pedals, or the panels, whatever you want to call it, that they're pressing on because it's two different, two separate legs. And the tension stays on the quad the whole damn time. And I never saw anybody go over 45 kilograms on the exercise on concentration curls, getting the angle just so and twisting your arm around into such a position that from start to finish, you felt the tension on the bicep and nothing else. And then we would have, I said, show them the tempo and the speed. Now, this is where the difference sometimes between a good amateur and a good professional bodybuilder and good genetics and bad genetics. Now you can have great genetics and be a shit athlete. That happens all the time. Uh, you need the desire, you need to the, the put the effort in. But if you're the kind of fella, and Vince is definitely, uh, comes into that category, who's able to completely focus on the moment and completely focus on the movement and keep it just about as strict as it needs to be and have the tension on the muscle the whole damn time. And then, like Vince, you're a hyper-responder, you blow up, you've got 20-inch arms at five foot nine, then you've got something that hardly anybody else has got. I Say this as a person that's a more of a strength athlete, of course, who throws weights around, not as much as he used to, but <laughs> just because it wears, wears you down at some point. And even then, so he's ended up with injuries, etc., which we talked about. So, yeah, uh, there's another thing as well, guys. There's no damn way that you're not a hybrid responder and you're competing 10 times in a year. There's no damn way that you're not a hybrid responder and winning and placing that high in these kind of competitions. And again, even with the posing, watching him pose, Stephen, and I'm not talking about the Terminator routine, but other things is his awareness of himself and his physique and how it's being displayed is on point. So this is definitely, guys, if you ever go to, I mean, I'm very lucky in that we do a former professional bodybuilder that trains occasionally, certainly more frequently years ago at my local gym that I still go to when I'm not training here at the house and watch him train, and he's, he's no heavyweights, not, he's reasonably strong, but nothing crazy, crazy heavy, but his focus, the rep range, the non-locking out, the keeping the tension where it needs to be, Vince was a master of this, and his genetics, his blessed genetics, those small joints, and his hyper-response to being able to do these things enabled him to have the physique that he had, and to win the comp in the gym let's go to the nutrition Steve, because I think it's just as freaky if not more so all right let's talk about it so as my officer alluded to very interesting on his nutrition so genetics allow you to do things they do allow you yeah. to do things that other people cannot do this is why you know we always well, tell you be. guys don't follow what pros do because what pros do, either you're going to follow what a professional bodybuilder does and you're going to get fat, or you're going to follow what Taylor does, did and still does, and you're not going to be able to choose your fitness goal. So 
Example, he doesn't believe in a restrictive diet. In other words, if he wants to eat a cheeseburger, he's going to eat a cheeseburger. If he wants to eat fast food, he's going to eat fast food. If he wants to drink a Coke before his workouts, he's going to drink a Coke, which he does. And comfort food has an effect on you mentally. So in his case, drinking a Coke before his workouts, that's a comfort food. That's a comfort drink. He enjoys a Coke and he drinks it, you know, and that gives him um, whatever he needs to, to get in his workout from a mental standpoint. Now, I would make the argument if he had had his diet on point from the very beginning, maybe he would have um, gotten first place at Mr. Olympia. Maybe he would have followed. He would have done what Ronnie Coleman did after him, you know, so it's hard to really it's hard to really know. Another thing he did that not others have done among the professionals is he never found it necessary to eat many meals per day. So he had to follow the very 70s style old school diet. This is how the guys really, they ate during the 70s, two to three meals a day, whole foods, a simple chicken, rice, broccoli, you know, something like that. Um, that's what they would eat and they would you know, they would show pictures of them, how they ate back then. That was how they, and that was considered weird in those days. And now we look at it and it's like, wow, you know, I think it's simple. And um, in his case, a typical meal would be meat and eggs. Very, very simple. It's not really complicated. He said, overall, I'm not a big consumer, never have been, never will be. So even to this day, he doesn't eat very much. And, um, you know, this proves that you don't have to eat tons of protein every day to build muscle. You just don't. But then again, he also has the genetics. So, yeah, Momster, give your thoughts on that. We'll get into a steroid right. So, for example, Steve, if you and I have a coda before a workout, I know that I would be gassy as fuck. With a, a very rarely drink cola anyway, any kind of cola. I don't care where it's from, whether it's the real deal or, or, or some generic version. Very rarely. And if I, I, I like caffeine because I like my coffee before I hit the gym, I'm not a fan of pre-workouts, for example. And I've mentioned this many times, but the idea of having a caffeinated and sugary drink, that's not too bad, but carbonated as well. So I would be burping and farting and it would feel really gassy and uncomfortable to get that in and then go work out. I think the sugar thing would fall off very quickly, even for the caffeine stage. So that's that's what's up right there. And I know... Uh, from the article and from looking up stuff online he talked time steve having one meal a day now steve is a great one for fasting uh, and there's even an argument that you could say well vince was kind of doing that but i don't think vince was i think was vince just didn't plan if he wasn't hungry he didn't eat uh if he didn't feel like he felt like he was full up already he stayed until he didn't feel full up so there's an element of that but the reality of the situation is here guys and Steve's quite correct. You don't need to have pounds and pounds of meat. You don't have to have a thousand grams of carbs a day. You've got to be that kind of response just for that volume of food and the ability to digest it. So that in itself, you need to be a kind of freak if you're doing, you know, three pounds of steak and thousand grams of carbs. You need to be, you know, you need to be using growth. You need to be using insulin. You need to be using a bunch of peptides and you need to be 250 pounds, 300 pounds. You just do, right? Whereas the reality of the situation here is that it's had some of those elements and didn't and is again that's because he was a freak so steve's quite correct and i'll touch on this particular line when it comes to both training and when nutrition vince's ability to accommodate and grow and be a great and very very good bodybuilder and winning a number of competitions we can't learn from vince we can maybe learn that bodybuilders need to be better posers and put some time in but most of you won't learn from using very, very light weights. You need to use medium, medium slash heavy. Maybe you could learn for his level of volume, maybe six to 12 reps. That's kind of the sort of stuff that I do. The lower end is more paranoid and the upper end. That's, you know, sometimes I'll go 20, but for the most part, it's no higher than 12 reps. But then again, I'm not a bodybuilder. Uh, when you look at food, I'm three meals plus protein shake sometimes four meals but very very rarely uh, and I, again I'm, i don't think we get into the calories here steve but I, i'm guessing it's not a lot of calories you're not talking about 
great big sumo wrestler's bowl of uh, soup here. So we're not talking about four or 5,000 calories a day. So there's swings and roundabout here, guys. What, one of the things you could learn from is his ability and the way that he describes it of working the angles, but more than that, getting the mind into the muscle and taking an exercise and absolutely strict as you like. It doesn't have to be immense weights. So, for example, a 500-pound benchers tend to have a big chest, but they don't necessarily have great pecs, and they don't necessarily exhibit a great side chest in a chest pose up on stage. So the ability to focus on the pecs and have them develop to their maximal amount and look great with the tie-ins, with your delts, with the rest of the abdomen, and so on and so forth, with the back being flexed as you're going into certain poses, by pushing them with the triceps and learning how to show the chest to its best. That doesn't come from a 500-pound bench. So Vince can teach you how to get the most out of an exercise. So go check his videos out, watch how he trains, and imagine just for a second that as he does it, he's getting a nasty, nasty burn and getting an immense pump and just is able to put his head into that space between the elbow and the shoulder and say, grow, bitch, grow, and really work the contraction. We've talked about, I believe I've seen this done in articles, where you don't even imagine the fibers contracting underneath the skin. And Arnold, I think, visualized, he said, we're trying to imagine his biceps as mountains, and cartoonists have drawn little pictures with Arnold's imagination, and there's a sort of snowy peak inside this, this upper arm. So the, and the situation right there is you go up, the desire to be the champion, was probably greater than anybody else's. So they're trained to beat everybody else in the gym when he was at goals, when all the guys were there, like in Pump and Iron, all that kind of stuff. The, the ability to get your head into that place and be the best you possibly can, that you can play from Vince, 100%. The one meal, two meals, Coca-Cola before training, not so much. The 30-pound dumbbells, for most of you, you won't, you won't have the ability to focus as well as what you did. So therefore, a 30 pound is not going to give you a great biceps peak. And of yeah. course, the genetics for muscle insertions and so on. Steve. Now let's get into the juice. Let's get into the juicy stuff that we guys like to hear. What Please. he talks about, what we think. Yeah, and uh, Momster, do you want to touch on first what he, what he talks about? Uh, because there is a video right. that I'm going to be linking in the article. Yeah. And he talks about TRT a little bit. And Mobster, maybe you can give your, uh, I'll give my opinion on what he said. Uh, my opinion yes. on what he said is really simple. I'll let you chime in on that because I know you have a lot to talk about with that. But right. he says that he used a small amount of testosterone. He didn't like it. He considered even 600 milligrams a week in excess dose. So, you know, some people don't react well with testosterone. Again, we go back to, I feel like, again, it's like, quote unquote, old school, but I hate that term old school. So it seems like he's more of a 70s bodybuilder when it comes to his nutrition when it comes to his even his little bit of his training and with his steroid yeah. use because in the 70s they did not like testosterone either and he didn't like it and i believe i believe him for sure because some people don't like what testosterone does it makes their muscles more watery it makes them more round so it doesn't give you that tight look and so i kind of i kind of get where he's coming from and he talks about it and, you know, um, he, he, he's just, I just have to keep going back to the seventies because in the seventies, they did not use testosterone in their cycles. So I have to keep going back to that. And it seems like in his situation, he kind of followed that same, that same seventies mentality. I almost wish he was around in the seventies in his peak years, because I think he would have dominated in the seventies. Oh, yeah. Him and Arnold would have, would have went toe to toe together in the seventies. It would have been, it would have been interesting. Um, he would have had to kind of overcome the, you know, that type the racial stuff that uh, Chris Dickerson had to overcome. And, um, you know, but it would have been really interesting to see him go toe to toe with Arnold and see those guys um, see the uh, genetics kind of go, but yeah, he really liked keeping his testosterone levels low. So those of you out there who like to run lots of testosterone on your cycles, you know, maybe, maybe 
maybe think about this, you know, think about running a cycle with no testosterone, think of running a cycle with very low testosterone at the most and see how you react to that. You might end up liking your cycle more. You might notice less side effects because he talks about this in the video. He likes the way he feels when he keeps his testosterone levels lower than higher. He likes the lack of bloat. He likes letting the other steroids in his cycle kind of run the action. And that's kind of what I've determined too over the years. So try something different, guys. There's no reason to be stubborn. Now, give your thoughts on this, Mobster. I'm kind of torn on it, right? Because I, 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 you know that I'm a low-dose fan. Uh, and again, I've touched on, I've just mentioned multiple times about his genetics response. So arguably, you go, is he talking about keeping the doses low? Because, of course, as a bodybuilder of that time, or even now, you don't want to bang the drum too much about high doses because that takes away from your training, your own focus, your ability to grow muscle and so on and so forth. And you've got fans and you don't want your fans thinking that the only reason you look the way that you look is because you're taking a load of gear. It might be the reality that you're taking a load of gear and sometimes that is a necessity with your competition. But equally, you know, he had great genetics to begin with and so on. I mean, that's the John Brown thing again, right? And again, with Vince competing, coming back and competing. I believe he talked about for the competition, he came back and competed at 50, Steve. He'd only trained for seven months. He'd actually had the previous four four years and five months with no training. That five-year five year gap, four years and five months was zero visits to the gym, no bodybuilding-style training whatsoever. And then seven months to come back and do well in Australia, et cetera, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast. So hyper, hyper responder. And then the, the, the vid, John Brown, Tiny waist, great posing. So as Steve said, the testosterone bloke, the way that some fellas responded, and again, maybe Vince knew how he responded. He lost that the, the small joint look. He'd fill out, he'd be watery, he, his waist would swell up, and so on. So there's a lot of guys, when we talk about stomachs and abdomens not being kept under control, look at Vince posing. Look at his physique. Tiny joints, small waist, and it stayed tight. I don't think we really saw any photographs or videos, Steve, when he was out of shape. It's just that the other person, when he wasn't winning, was in better shape. You're talking about competing against Lee Haney when Lee outweighs you by 20 pounds and still has a small waist. So that's that kind of vibe going on. I agree. For example, he's saying about 600 milligrams a week as an excessive dose. But again, it might be one of those things where he has to say it or even when he took more gear, he would consider a thousand or two thousand or three thousand to be excessive. But maybe he still needed to do that in order to kick ass, and especially later on in his career, if not at the beginning. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, Steve. I think there's also do we talk about what specifically we think he took, or do we talk about what athletes of his generation and that were competing at the time? So I think when we discuss his cycle, it's we should have half an eye on whether he used more than he would like to refer to, because that took away too much from what he was doing in the gym and his genetics. Uh, and yet at the same time, he was using that amount of gear or whether we say, if it wasn't Vince, this is what anybody else who didn't have Vince's genetics would be using. And that's kind of my approach here, Steve. I'll start it off for a change. You pay of HGH. 100% the guys were starting to use HGH then, in fact, earlier but they become a big thing to be used on a regular basis. And this is when the numbers started to creep up. I'm going to say, Steve, that when the beginning of his career, five IUs for athletes competing at the level that Vince was competing, but it was starting to creep up. And by the time Vince came along, and especially at the middle of his career, 15 IUs per day would be typical. Now, we know in modern uh, competitions and, and competing and uh, cycles, the numbers are getting higher and higher and higher. So we see much bigger numbers now. But again, there's no argument about what Vince did working for Vince. And keep that in mind, guys. So we can talk about this from a perspective of what he might have used. But it doesn't mean it will work for you. Something that Steve talks about in the, in the article is 1,200 milligrams a week of Primo, Primo Bolin. And again, this is a show, show thing. And as Steve said already, you're not looking at a walk with physique ever on stage for Vince. So, and again, it's a 70s drug, but taken to a bigger number. So instead of the 
uh, Arnold-esque 200 milligrams a week. We're talking about 1,200 milligrams a week. Uh, the next drug I'm a fan of, and even then perhaps not at this level, with the other drugs, 1,000 milligrams a week of DECA. Now, Vince, with the poundage that he was using, not going to be ruining his joints. So this is for him much more of a muscle-building, muscle-retaining drug, a show drug, especially with the Primo, than it is a curing your what ails you in terms of joint wear and tear because he shouldn't be pounding it. And of course, I say that with the fact that, as we know, he did actually tear a bicep. Funny enough, I believe it wasn't in the gym. I think it was swimming and it took him that long a time to come back. But it was also because of the lightweights, he wasn't tearing that shit up after. So this is not a joint drug for him. This is a retaining muscle, growing muscle. And then finally, Steve, and I hand it over to you, a relatively low dose, as Steve said already, and purely and simply because maybe he knew how he responded to it. And that was 200 milligrams of weak testosterone. Now that's, as Steve says, bearing in mind you could watch a video where Vince touches on it himself, a TRT dose. That is a tiny, tiny amount. It, in fact, there's an awful lot of fellas call themselves TRT when they're on a half as much again at 300, Was in reality, TRT could be dosed a lot less. But for him, in conjunction with the drugs that we've already talked about, just enough to let it shine, but not so much that he got watery, not so much that he got irritable, not so much that he had any side effects or problems. I can't think of a, a single photograph or video from any of that time when I was around and become interested in bodybuilder Steve when there was an out of shape Vince Taylor. There might have been a slightly smaller Vince Taylor or slightly bigger. There might have been a slightly older one when it comes to winning the Masters, especially at age 50. But there was never an out of shape Vince Taylor. There was no watery, there was no soft looking, there was no podgy faced, round faced, belly sticking out Vince Taylor. So definitely, Steve, I agree with you. For him, it, maybe he realized very early on, or maybe he just bothered himself on John Brown and didn't really get used into the high levels. What about the rest of the drugs, Steve? Yeah, the next one, Masteron, 1,200 milligrams a week. Um, no doubt, if you're running that much DECA, you got to run a DHT with it. And the Primo is a DHT, but Masteron is a straight DHT. So the hydrotestosterone derivative, Masteron, great for vascularity, great for harness of the muscle, great yeah. for giving you that contest look, the cuts, the muscle cuts. So that would be something for him. Winstrol, 200 milligrams a day. I'm, I get the sense that, you know, around the time he was competing, orals were really, really important. They're quick acting in the body. They're in, out of your body quick. There's a lot of flexibility with using oral steroids. Winstrol is great ahead of the competition. It's going to dry you out. It's going to increase vascularity. So, it's basically similar to Masteron, except it's, it dries the crap out of you uh, much more effectively than any other steroid out there. And you'll notice that if you run Winstrol, you'll notice your joints feel very dry, even though you may never, ever have had any joint issues before. Well, even on Winstrol, you will notice that dry joint feeling. Well, that's something that Vince would have not minded because Vince lifted lighter weights. Do you remember from earlier in the podcast what Mobster talked about? So to me, it'd be perfect to use Winstrol yeah. if you're a guy like him. And then even in a situation where he would lift heavier weights, he still got that DECA in there. He still got that DECA to help offset those joint issues. So a lot of yin and yang here. And then Turanable, 150 milligrams per day, Turanable, great steroid, low side effects, hardens you up, good for vascularity. So that would be something that he would have loved as well. And then of course, diuretics. Diuretics, you play around with diuretics ahead of your competition. It helps flush excess water out of your system. Um, and that's something that they, they messed around with a lot in those days uh, when, uh, when Vince was doing well. So yeah, any, any final thoughts on this mobster before you take us into the disclaimer? I think on the cycle stuff here very quickly, uh, Tyranobol has been around for a long time, guys. It's one of those drugs that we sometimes think hasn't, but it has. And it's one of those, any of these items would have been down to accessibility. 
but you've got to remember he was in Europe a lot as much as he was in America. So I could argue that accessibility wouldn't have been too much of an issue. So yeah, I think it's one of those things when it comes to the cycle, Steve, that when he says about 600 milligrams being a week an excessive dose, bodybuilders, especially those that are competing at his level, are doing what needs to be done. If you look at the sheer numbers, it's a, it's a decent, there's a couple of grams a week going in here, Steve, maybe a little tiny bit more, but you're not looking absolutely crazy, crazy amounts, but they were starting to creep up in those days. So we can, we're, we're second guessing as we always do with these podcasts when it comes to the cycles, unless we specifically say that they've talked about it and we know that he's talked about TRT. So we go, right, did he use some of these things? I'm gonna say 100% yes, Steve. He would have experimented, he would have found out what worked for him and what didn't. And that's what I'll quite often in this day and age, that doesn't happen as well. So you could try low doses, you can see how you respond. He might not have liked how he felt on certain drugs. He might not have liked whether he got watery. He might have been doing a lot of guest posing. If he's competing 10 times a year, he couldn't get out of shape. And then when we talk about the windstraws, the dryer, and the master on us, it's great for competition, 100%. When you're competing 10 times a year, you need to be hard, you need to be ripped. And especially when you go back and look at those times when he was competing at that, that level of that frequency and staying in shape the whole damn time, even if he wasn't winning every single competition. And there's been times when he has. You don't get that if you're watery, if you're out of shape, if you're fat, and if you don't know how you respond and respond well to certain drugs. And again, we can look at the drugs that others were using at that time. Finally, as I said on that already, and that is whether he's going to admit to using these drugs or whether he says 600 milligrams a week is an excessive dose as a way of getting you, the listener, and the followers that you would have had at that time and now, not to go crazy, relying on drugs to do everything, which is a big, big problem, guys. You need to be putting the time in the gym. If you don't have his genetics, if you're not able to get your mind into muscle, if you can't get the angles worked, as he liked to put it, then taking all these drugs is not going to turn you into a Vince Taylor. It's going to turn you into a watery mess if you're not careful. You can't do Coca-Cola as a pre-workout. You can't eat one meal a day. And then you can't do all this level of drugs and not have his genetics and hope for the same response because it's just not going to happen. So you've got to remember, guys, learn from how he was able to put his mind into the muscle. The rest is going to come down to Vince's genetics. And trust me, it's only maybe two or three other bodybuilders that had the kind of genetics and the hyper response that Vince had and was able to lift the kind of lightweights that he did and still look the way that he did, and then learn how to be a great poser and show that muscle on stage. And still, as I said already, compete in 10 I've competed four times in a year, Steve, and I did not like it. I preferred once, that's from my strength stuff. The idea of dieting down and getting into shape or better shape, because you're not getting out of shape, and competing 10 times a year, that's just fucked up. Most top, top athletes now Less they're running behind on the points qualifier. I think you're looking at your, your top pros are competing two, maybe three times. And if you're a big Rammy, if you've won a Mr. Olympia, you aren't competing apart from at the Mr. Olympia. You're doing the least you possibly can. I think there's also an argument here for him earning money by competing as frequently as he did, because obviously of what he said about how he was treated uh, commercially and marketing-wise in the U.S. versus elsewhere. So in other words, he was probably getting the money that he thought he deserved from bodybuilding, from placing, from winning, and from doing posing uh, and exhibition work in between those competitions versus the way that we make money from social media now. So guys, apply what you can learn from him, ignore the fact that he was a genetic freak, and by all means, check him out. He is definitely worth looking at. He's definitely you. One or two of you listeners may well have this kind of freaky genetics, in which case apply, apply, apply. And by number one, please check out that Terminator routine. It is an absolute classic. It really is. It's one of those things that teaches you too many professional bodybuilders in this day and age do not put the time and the effort into their stagecraft. They don't own the stage. They don't look like they should be there sometimes. The only time it gets live is during the pose down. And sometimes it looks like they've just taken a, a song out of the charts and they're going to come on and do eight, eight, eight poses and repeat. And when the two minutes are up, they walk off and let the physique do the talking. By all means, if you've got a big Rammy type physique, maybe that's all you need to do. But some of you who are competing 
And the thing that's going to help you win, especially if your competition is very, very close physically, would be a great routine. And trust me, if you like being on stage and you're up in front of 2,000 people and the lights are shining down in your eyes and you've worked hard all year to get into shape for this competition and it's real, real close, having 2,000 people go crazy because you are showing them something they've never seen before. And it's in a routine like the Terminator routine, which I believe was probably done at the first time. And I think he did it at smaller shows and then eventually took it to Olympia. The Olympia was up there in those days with 4,000 people and the crowd goes crazy. That is a vibe that many an entertainer tells you you can't get. That's the best high they get. And they, if they take drugs afterwards, it's because they're trying to get the high that they got being up on stage, whether doing comedy or singing or a great film star, or in this case, an absolutely amazing physique with an amazing, outstanding, of its time, iconic posing routine. Check it out. Right, guys, as always, please note, we are not doctors and the opinions on this podcast are hours and hours alone. It's our view and best on our experience and views on the topic. Our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only for the freedom of speech and personal.